is Danish Dynamite, the Superliga podcast, brought to you by footballindenmark.com. Welcome to Danish Dynamite, episode 19, and for the first time ever, two episodes in a week, which is very exciting. So if you haven't listened to the interview with Mate Delach, goalkeeper from Horsens, that came out on Monday, go back and listen to that. But for today's show, I have got Casper de Lind back by popular demand to chew through another exciting weekend of Super League action. Casper, welcome. Where to start? Actually, I think what, what I think where we'll start is over the weekend, I decided to share an opinion on Twitter, which is always quite a dangerous thing to do. And not to my surprise, I discovered that people also have strong opinions. So the opinion was on the Superliga switching to a summer league format. And I wondered, Casper, what's your take on this? Because I, my reasoning for it was, you know, the weather is pretty rubbish as, as we get into to late autumn, winter. The winter break's really long. You're competing with Bundesliga, Premier League during the season. And it means that when the teams have their crucial European qualifiers in the summer, they're just really getting going in their seasons. So they don't, they're not hitting them at full speed. And, you know, we saw with AGF getting beaten by a team from Northern Ireland, for example, that that can be quite detrimental to the, to the coefficient. So, yeah, I wondered what was your take on this? And I'm going to try and drag you into this debate. <laughs> yeah. So actually I, uh, I heard your episode with Christian Malin as well. And I saw your post uh, the other day. And I am basically uh, pretty pro of making this move. I think uh, it would be great to get uh, more people on stadiums during the summer. And I think it's an awesome opportunity. And there's nothing worse than a cold winter day. uh, And everything is freezing to ice and the pitches are horrible. And then the Superliga gets, uh, you could say, uh, settled on on bad pitches. So I like the idea of moving the season because it gives more uh, games in a, in a better period. And, and then I think you need to be extremely aware of the shortfalls as well, because yes, you're right. There is a chance that your teams are up and running at full speed. But at the same time, there's no doubt that it's still going to be the summer window when squads are going to be uh, emptied by bigger clubs, right? So it is also a balance there. So yes, you might be uh, running in better form, but you will still be losing your best squad up against... Uh, the end of the season, which I assume would be in favor of the strong teams in general over a year. So maybe it's uh, it would be better news for FC Copenhagen and FC Michelin in the long run to have a setup like this. Uh, but that's just my quick thinking around it. Yeah, and your team are more than likely going to be involved in some European games over the summer. So that's going to be uh, an exciting prospect and hopefully speaking purely from a selfish point of view maybe we'll get another draw in uh, in england or or elsewhere in the uk that will enable me to go to it so that'd be fun. i would like us to go to wales <laughs> yeah that'd be amazing that would be amazing you mentioned about the weather is it just me or does everyone say that farham is the coldest place to be in winter because there are there are places more northern in denmark but it seems to me that's the name that people always say that you've never been colder than an fc norgeling game is that true it, I can say it is extremely cold at least. I'm not one of these fans that go on a lot of away trip. Uh, my small family doesn't really uh, permit me to to go. Um, but I can say Farm is by far the coldest stadium I've been at. Um, and that's comparing uh, predominantly antecedent. So often when we go during the winter months, I have uh, like two sets of ski underwear on, extra socks and uh, winter boots, a winter jacket, of course a hat. 
and uh, I still go home freezing with two blankets on. So uh, so it's it's not great. Yeah, at the Viborg FC Michelin game a few weeks ago, I was handed a blanket, which is the first time I've ever had that in the stands. But that was quite nice having a blanket. I definitely didn't say no to that. Yeah, it's nice, huh? Let's um let's talk about some of the some of the action and mm-hmm. big result this weekend. Viborg one, FC Norgeland nil. How big of a blow was was that result to you? So the result was a very big blow. More con- oh, I don't even know if it's more concerning, but as concerning as the result was uh, the the game in itself. I mean, it was pretty underwhelming uh, that we didn't have uh, more tools in the toolbox uh, than we did. And uh, I think this season started out by being a bit, now I'm going to sound like a pure fan, right? But I think FC Notion was a bit unlucky in the first few games, but I think it's evolved into like a, a crisis on the pitch, or a small crisis at least, so we're just not playing as well as uh, as we should. And uh, Vibon, they are a structured team with uh, a very fine balance between attacking and defending and knows how to make the game uh, compact. And they once again uh, proved that their concept in itself was strong and uh, Neuschland simply didn't have uh, the correct response to that. So result, bad Game form, really bad. Uh, so let's see uh, if it's going up or down for FC Neuschland going forward here. Your mood, bad? My mood is actually okay because, I mean, I'm not one of these fans who say it is so horrible that we've lost 10 points. I'm still pretty much in the mood of, yes, I would have preferred not to lose 10 points to FC Copenhagen, but I still look at the big picture on where we came from. So... I cry with one eye and I smile with the other one still. And uh, people is uh, probably going to say that it is unambitious. It's uh, the FC Neuschland attitude. And, uh, well, both of those cases might be true, but it's still the way I feel, I must say. Got it, yeah. And going into that game, I actually, when the teams came out, I thought if there was any opportunity for, for Neuschland to get some good luck in, in their favour, not playing against Elias Ashuri at the moment, who's you know unquestionably the, the danger man for Viborg, was a positive. And yet, as you said, it was a bit of a flat performance. I remember a chance for, for Ernest Noama on his left foot, but beyond that, there wasn't a huge amount to, to talk about. I wonder, given that there's been some water under the bridge since then, how much is Sheldrup's loss being felt, do you think? Ah, it's a, it's a lot, right? I think the the big thing for me is if you see the build up now with FC Neuschland, they've moved in Diomande as a false left wing, you can say. So he falls down into the pitch, he becomes a part of the build up. Whereas Schiller was very often the man, the furthest in front of our team. So he had very few passes in him, and that's because he was brought on, you can say, the very last part of the pitch. So it's been a fundamental change to the build up which has had the consequence that we now only have speed over the right wing, which means that we in general are a bit more predictable. And then just back to the game, I think you're completely right. We only had the Nuama chance. And now again, I'm going to sound like a super fan again. But again, Vibo didn't either have any chances before they scored. So until the they came in front 1-0, it was a pretty even game with a small favor in FC Neuschland's advantage with FC Neuschland with the only big chance. Then there is a corner kick. They fumble it into the goal. And that is also very much the talk of the season or the spring season, at least, that quality has just been dipping in these uh, very crucial moments. And 
that goes for both the shot from Noama that hits the post and it goes from the full team not defending properly on a corner shot. On the subject of Shelrup, I think hindsight is obviously twenty twenty, but seeing him play very few minutes for Benfica, I do wonder whether it would have whether it would have been beneficial for him to have had the rest of the season on loan, see out what was a very promising year, continue that momentum and then then move in the summer, but maybe that wasn't an option. I think th- well it depends, right? I think could FC Neuschland have forced a player to stay? For sure they could. It's not the first time in history that someone's been forced not to move, but it's also a matter of uh, how do you want to live up to the promises that you make? And um, maybe if FC Neuschland had been another club, they would have, uh, yeah, as I said, forced him to to stay. But I, uh, I mean, uh, he started to post on Instagram the eagle of Benfica uh, in negotiation period. So I think it was pretty clear on what uh, Andreas at least wanted. So uh, so it's always these conversations can be a bit tough because one thing is if Andreas gets upset, but Andreas also played a very big role in getting in the next Norwegian superstar that's coming in, in, in the summer, right? So again, you want Andreas Schellerup to be the ambassador for FC Neuschland going forward for the next many years. And FC Neuschland are going to battle out Every single time there's a great Norwegian player, they're going to battle it out against FC Copenhagen. So even though it sounds crazy to let your best man go, it might be uh, worth it in the long run to uh, respect uh, the arrangement that was made to have a a strong ambassador in in the future. I was thinking more in terms of a loan back. Uh, I I, Ah. I I remember with, with Arsenal... When we bought Saliba, he went back on loan to to Saint Etienne for another season to manage that that development process. But maybe it wasn't an option, and maybe the player wasn't up for it. I just uh... I, I can say definitively that what Andreas wanted was to go to Benfica. So I mean, there's no I mean, so uh, I think it's a fair conversation to have. How should you have made him stay if you wanted to play that move? But there was no chance of Andreas staying with uh, his own wish, at least. That's fair. You've got a, a big game coming up tomorrow in the Cup, playing FC Copenhagen, a sort of test run for what will be the title decider, perhaps, in a couple of weeks in the Superliga. H- how do you feel about the Cup? Do you have a, the same excitement for it as you would for a league game? And do you think that winning the Cup would make up for not winning the league, should that happen? Um, so if we start with what I feel about the Cup. So in general, FC Neuschland's had a, quite a good success over the years in the cup and i've been really enjoyed being in the stands uh, for the for the cup earlier so i'm i'm pretty excited i'm going i'm a bit curious to see how we're going to solve it from a solu- uh, from a uh, team selection point of view um because i think we will see a little bit of rotation uh, and that i think how we decide to line up is also going to have a big influence on how happy i'm going to be with winning or losing because if uh, we come tomorrow and we've rotated half half the team then my expectations are low but i hope that he comes in strong and he plays a proper side so we won't get uh, beaten around uh snorschland um, so so let's see my hopes are going down at the moment it's definitely not i'm not as excited as i was for the team's form but uh, again now we have uh, quite a few home games coming up so hopefully that can change my attitude I guess if there was a time to play FC Copenhagen, it might be now. They've been grinding out results. They haven't been putting in fantastic performances. And I think this weekend gone, they probably got a bit lucky. There was an offside goal for AGF, which seen the replay. And to me, it looks 
onside. So I don't know what happened there. There were also some heroics from Camille Grabara and the game finished 0-0. AGF come away with a creditable point. But, you know, FC Copenhagen haven't been blowing teams away lately. So it could be, could be an interesting time to face them. Yeah, well, well I, I get what you're saying, but they're still 10-1-1. And it's okay that you uh, decline a little bit in performance. And I think the biggest respect to Nestop and the way he set up the team, I think even when they aren't playing smashing attacking football, I think they're still a very hard team to create chances against. So yeah, as I said, I am slightly pessimistic for FC Norrland's uh, chances uh, in the next three games against FC Copenhagen over, over a very short period in time. And before we completely move off the subject of FC Norrland, I just wanted to give you three names and you tell me whether you think they will still be here next season or not. Ernest Nwama. Out. Oliver Villardson. Out. Adamo Nagalo. Out. Wow. <laughs> wow. When you add to the fact that Fagir is only on loan, I believe, right? Correct. And Bidstrup is going to be returning to Brentford. That's a big <laughs> that's a big change that's going to be happening for next season. And for the I guess for the European matches yeah, and, if they depending where when they're sold. Yeah, and that's exactly it, right? I think uh, we at FC Norseland, uh, the fans, we speak about the big reset this summer. So it's all it's also all or nothing now because next year we will not be title contenders at all. I think these FC Norseland teams, they come in cycles and they perform in cycles. And uh, now we will go into the next build-up. And uh, I think in addition to those you mentioned... I think uh, Jakob Sten Christensen is uh, also uh, a likely candidate to to leave, right? So uh, potentially it's all three of the central midfielders who's out. Uh, so um, so I think they will be super. It will be a, a very interesting period for uh, Jan Lawson to figure out how to reset the team so we don't drop out of top six again, but we uh, we try to stop the bleeding somewhere. It's going to be fascinating to see how that's rebuilt and what you do with the money. Because given some of the sales recently, I think FC Norseland have shown the ability to command decent transfer fees. And I think that's something that can't be said for all teams in the Superliga. So I think with that money to play with, it's going to be uh, yeah, going to be very interesting to see who gets brought through from the academy and who comes in in terms of maybe more experienced players to, to steady the ship. And I'm not actually, I'm not that concerned. Again, uh, I don't expect us to be number one or two next year. So it's just a matter of fig- figuring out who's get going in and who's coming up from the bottom, as you said. And uh, the only two or three players that really concerns me is actually Bistop, because I haven't seen anyone in the academy that uh, has similar attributes. And I think a Bistop player is going to be extremely expensive to buy. Secondly, it's a similar problem with Nagalo. Probably very expensive to buy a quick defender with good feet uh, in the passing uh, long passing range. Uh, and then Nuama is also a bit of a, a tough one. I know we have a few very quick people on the uh, under-19 squad that potentially can re- replace Nuama, but he has star quality. And every time someone with star quality leaves, then we need to build it up again. Absolutely. Well, watch this space. The next team that I wanted to talk about was Ranners. And they've been a, a real surprise since moving to the championship group. Obviously lost them, lost their manager, Thomas Thomasberg, moved to FC Michelin. And I thought this was going to be the case of them just fading away towards the end of the season as they bed in under a new manager. Uh, they're not the deepest squad. And yet they 
picked up a, a one-all draw away at AGF. They beat FC Copenhagen, got a draw with FC Norgeland, and then this weekend gone, absolutely blew Bromby away. 4-0 in Vestinen. Incredible result, and what a job the new manager's doing there. Yeah, very, very strong. It's uh, I think the biggest achievement that he's done, and this is going to sound a bit tough, but is that he's not changed too much. He's just added a few percentage on how they want to pass the ball around the pitch. I think he's a bit more offensively thinking in general, uh, but it's very much playing on similar Rana's principles that work. And I think the uh, the game in Brunby was a, was a true statement to uh, how good they actually are. And especially, I know this might sound a bit weird to you, but Danish media tends to focus on the teams on Zealand. So FC Norseland, Brøndby, FC Copenhagen. And it doesn't matter what's happening really in Jutland. We're still only going to be talking about what's happening at, on Zealand, right? So when good stuff happens in Jutland, then it often takes the media a bit longer time to really uh, catch what's going on because the focus is predominantly on Zealand teams. And I think it's a bit of a shame because once again, uh, just like we've seen with Vibo and also AGF doing great stuff, it's just like uh, a team from Jutland probably get a little bit less appraisals than they should. And uh, wow, did they show that they need all the recognition uh, around. Yeah, and if you think back to the season before last, two of the key players for Rana's were... Uh, Stephen Odi and Tosin Kehinde. And I, I think in the last few games, you've really seen that their confidence return. The goals have come back for Stephen Odi. And yeah, they, th- those players, uh, when they're on form, can add so much that I think it just gives them an extra dimension. Completely agree. I think it's going to be interesting to see what they can do, whether they can push up from uh, currently sitting in fifth. And I was looking at the league table and I've said Many times I think that this league split is very positive in that it keeps teams throughout both parts of the the league engaged and with something to aim at. But there's two teams that I think, to use a, a British media phrase, are already on the beach, right? They're, they're, they're thinking about the summer holidays. They, they know that their position is safe. And I wouldn't say they've given up, but they're not playing with the intensity of the teams around them. And that's Bromby and Silkeborg. I feel like Silkeborg are... 10 points from safety, six games to go. They're not going down. The teams below them are stuck in that fight. Bromby are sixth, so in the championship group, but they are 10 points off the top three. They're not going to threaten there. So for fans of those teams, how should they be uh, trying to enjoy the rest of the season? Should they be uh, uh, hoping to see young prospects coming through? Should they be looking for an uptick in form to finish the season strong? How should they be approaching these given it looks like there's not really much for them to aim for. I think I think it's always a tough question, right? We we had a talk in I think it was in December where I said Lungby should just relax, lay back, they're already out, and then they came in really strong and they've really proven themselves over the season since then, right? And I think that is a testament to the fact that you can still move a lot. And the uh, let's say Lungby goes down, then they must go down with a pretty good attitude no matter what, and it must they must come into the next season pretty high. I think similarly for Silkeborg and Bonby, if they just, especially Bonby, if they just uh, lie back now, they might get six more beatings, which is going to be very bad for next season's preparation. And again, they have two games against FC Copenhagen just around the corner. One thing that Bonby fans doesn't like is to lose to FC Copenhagen, right? So um, they really need to, I think, play their best, 
And then, of course, if one of these young players is good enough, bring him in. But don't bring him in if he's 10-15% below the rest. Only bring him in if he's just chasing the others. And for me, uh, watching a lot of under 19s football, I can say it's super tough to assess if a player is good enough. The only one that can truly assess that, that will be Jesper Sørensen and team. If they don't play now, it's probably because they are lacking more than two, three, four, five percent in my opinion. I know Twitter can be a bit of a skewed medium for, I don't know, sourcing opinions, but I have seen some Bromby fans talking about Jesper Sorensen maybe not making it past the summer. What do you think? Is that too premature or has he failed to have an impact? So I think there's two things. First of all, you can always fire a coach if the dressing room, if he's, if you've lost the dressing room. If it's one of these cases where, just like with Eric Hamrein, no one believes that he should be there, get him out. I don't think that's the case in Bonby. And I think Bonby fans are making a fuss out of these defeats. I think when I break down, down these games that they've lost, yes, they've been poor at times. But I think it's also worth noting which kind of changes have Jesper Sørensen uh, made towards the formation uh, up against what Nils Frederiksen did. And he has a far more ambitious style on the ball than Nils Frederiksen ever had. With an ambitious style on the board, you also get into more vulnerable positions on the pitch. And I think when they have uh, met these extremely structured teams, the weakness of the Brøndby organization has been extremely clear. So maybe Jesper Sørensen didn't step change Bonby, he went all in. And maybe he got a bit of false promises in the first few games when they met FC Midtjylland, when they met Silkeborg, that was doing bad, both of them, and they met Horsens, who's been absolutely terrible. So maybe that gave him confidence to keep pushing for a little bit more. And I think now meeting these high-structured teams in top six, they've gotten their asses kicked, and maybe it was just a bit too much. So I think... I understand why he wants to change football like that. And I think it's a step in the right direction. But I think it's it's clear that it's moved too fast. And I think the entire conversation around firing a coach where you've given him the job to change Bonby into a more offensive direction is ludicrous. I think it's uh, senseless to think that you can change a team over nine games on a formation point of view uh, and on the style of philosophy as well. Um, and then expect them to be competing against the top. Then what you should have done or could have done is you should have taken a Nils Frederiksen 2.0, another extreme pragmatic in setting up the game. And then, yes, maybe then your demands could be bigger in terms of short-term results. But uh, if you want to make a true change to the game, then just like with Eric Ten Hag in United, he also looked like a complete idiot at the beginning of the season against Brighton and against Brentford because the ambition level for the game was extremely high. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I, I think he's he's in a tricky position because he's got these final six games of the season where he could, in theory, experiment, stick with the plan and, and see if it beds in. But at the same time, if they finish with these six games disastrously, lose two derbies, you wonder, will the sentiment kind of outweigh the benefit of being able to to have those kind of six free hit games. But it's it's super tough, right? I think uh, when Brøndby played against FC Nordsjælland, they played uh, a pretty good game in the second game and they played with Anis Benzlimane on central midfield. So should Anis Benzlimane be, be playing against FC Nordsjælland when all rumour says he's out this summer? 
I mean, is so what do you build up, right? So I think that in itself is a move towards trying to set the best team to win points, but it's also not playing the long-term game. But again, if you then take out all the players you don't expect to be there next year, who's then left? And already now they're struggling with the team that they have. So if they intentionally handicap their own team by taking players away that are not there yet next year, I mean, who's left, right? Yeah, and I think a, a big potential departure for them is Mads Hermanson. There was, um, everyone saw Vincent Company at the stadium and I don't think it's a, a big secret that he's he's looking at, at Mads Hermanson. Burnley, obviously, being promoted to the Premier League, so it would be a great opportunity for me to see him over here. But yeah, big loss for, for Bombian. I think even though they've conceded is it 43 goals this season, which is the, the most by any team in the, the championship group by 11. Despite that, he's looked good and he's put in some strong performances. So yeah, that's going to be a, a big loss for them. I think it's it's actually interesting because I completely agree. I think he's a very, very strong goalkeeper. And I think that his goalkeeping skills in itself is at a very high level and he might very well be uh, the future national co- uh, goalkeeper of Denmark. But Bonby wants to build up the game now with the ball at the feet of the goalkeeper. And he's just not that good at that. So if Bonby had to sell someone where they could cash in, get a goalkeeper that's a lot more ball-focused oriented, it might not be too bad to get in a goalkeeper that's 10% worse on the save saves if, he, if he's 20% better on the ball. Because it might actually uh, be a real change to the way they build up the game. So when I look at departures in Bonby, I would say they are losing a super good player, but they're not necessarily losing a player that's super important to their style of play. You touched earlier on a, a prediction you'd made, which was that Lungby were dead and buried and should just uh, accept their fate. And I don't know whether they listened to this, but they, they obviously took it to heart because I think since that January window, we've talked every week about how even though sometimes they're not getting the results, the performances have been superb and they find themselves now five points from safety. They leapfrogged Alborg. Uh, so uh, for anyone listening, Horsens are sat one place above relegation on 26 points. Lungby there with 21 and Alborg with 20. It's, it's hard to know which way this is going to go. I think you could say that Alborg are building some momentum, at least in terms of performances. Lungby definitely have some momentum. Horsens have shown they've got great fighting spirit. So oh, it's going to be really interesting to see how this pans out. Do you want to change that Lungby prediction? And Well, I want to change what they've been worth in the, se- in the end of the season, right? Because I think, again... It is our rivals, but they've really put in a, a strong show here. Uh, I still think they're going down. And I think actually that Horsens will stay up. But I think, uh, again, huge, huge uh, results on the pitch. And yeah, I've been playing a little bit of football with uh, Jonathan Hartmann. So maybe he has been listening in on, on the podcast. So uh... Say Lungby and Alborg were to go down. If you were to take one player from each of them, and drop them into the FC Norgeland setup for next season, who would you be taking? Albo and Lungby. I wouldn't take a Lungby player. I mean, they are player by player worse than every single player that we got, right? Uh, and I, uh, yeah, I, I don't see anyone. I think it's, it's a good, good collective now, but I cannot see anyone playing a real role. 
Uh, in Aalborg, I would probably take... That's a tough one. It's a really tough one. I would probably take Lucas Andersen because he's such a... He's, he's such an interesting uh, character, and maybe we could be the the squad that could get him back into uh, into real form, and uh, we could play him as a deep lying midfielder, and then someone else could do the hard work next to him. Just going to be like a Emiliano Marcondes revival team. It's it's for me. It's more. It's going to be like a Danish Pirlo role. <laughs> you know what? I've got a theory that he's growing his hair long, so that if they get relegated, he can disguise himself and still still walk around the city. Could be very true. Could be very true. But yes, still so much uh, so much drama to come in the next round of games. Horsens kick things off on on Friday against Obi. Uh, Viborg play Ranners on Sunday lunchtime. At the same time, Alborg play Lungby. That's an absolutely huge game at the bottom of the table because whoever wins that is going to leave the other one bottom of the table adrift. Then we've got the Copenhagen derby, which is always an incredible spectacle. And I think I'm right in saying away fans are allowed in this time. Is that right? I have no clue. <laughs> okay. I think that, uh, don't, don't quote me on that, but I think they're allowed back in. Norsland AEF. Sunday afternoon, the, the the late game, and yeah, that's going to be it's going to be a fantastic game. I don't see that being a goal fest. I think that AGF are really really tough to beat, but that could be a spanner in the works for for title ambitions for sure, no doubt. And then Monday, it's FC Michelin Silkeborg, and this is one that struggling to get excited for this one, just because it looks like Michelin have sewn up or close to sew, sewing up that. Uh, European playoff place. As I said, Silkeborg look like they're on the beach. And so I can't see past this being a, a sort of routine 2-0 Michelin win. Do you have a different opinion on this one? I think it's going to be super dull. And I think uh, Silkeborg has also had a bit of a rough time with injuries and uh, form crisis on great players. So I, uh, I have a very hard time seeing Silkeborg uh, manage to do anything about uh, this game. And I've not looked at the form in between them, but if I recall it correctly, Midtjylland has been doing pretty strongly against Silkeborg over a fairly long period. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I definitely expect a pretty uh, easy game for Midtjylland. Yeah, actually, in the previous games this season, we had a quite incredible three-all draw. Silkeborg won away oh, yeah. in Midtjylland 3-1. So that, that's been the results this season. Last season, I think Midtjylland got the better of all four encounters. But yeah, th- this season... Silkeborg have uh, have put six past Michelin in two games. So talking about this not being a high-scoring game, I might be wrong, but um, but yeah, let's see. Cool. So yeah, Casper, thank you so much for coming on. As always, full of knowledge and interesting tidbits about Danish football that I couldn't possibly pick up on my own. So I'm really grateful for you coming on. Really grateful for for you sparing your time. And I hope you will come back for the season finale because I am going to be doing a little awards show and I'm going to be canvassing the opinion of various people. So I'd love to get you back then and sharing your awards of the season. I would uh, love to be in that show and I promise you that I'll be uh, slightly less depressed in the next episode. <laughs> Listen, football is as much about the journey as the destination. That's what that's what I keep telling myself as Arsenal f- fall further and further behind in the title race, but you have to try and enjoy the present and you know Norsland are playing some great stuff. You're in the cup. 
you're in the title race enjoy it while enjoy it while you can at the end of the season you can reflect and there might be something to celebrate there might not be but it's going to have been a season that you'll remember definitely fantastic okay stay with us Uh, after the break i've got uh, another special guest coming up for very interesting feature on probabilities and odds and all sorts of numbers related stuff that is way beyond my pay grade Welcome back to part two, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mads Gerner Pedersen, an FC co-fan who throughout the season has been producing these brilliant graphs that chart the various probabilities for title, relegation, etc. Mads, welcome to the show. Delighted to have you here. Thank you, Henry. Thank you for having me. I guess if uh, if you haven't seen one of Mads' graphs, I'm going to put the link to the most recent ones on my Twitter so that you can see what we're talking about. But I guess the first question I've got is... What is it that that really kind of drew you to the numbers side of, of the game and, and uh, into producing these? I think when I started producing these, we were in the winter's break in the 21-22 season. As a Copenhagen fan, it was a pretty weird time. Yeah, we fired Stole a year prior and we got Jastorv as a coach. And I think everything was looking kind of sh- And then there was a very long winter break and I just sat and looked around at the betting numbers and thought that these have a very good way of, of telling what are the actual chances. And I started producing the graphs. Um, and then, of course, my background is that I'm an economist. So <laughs> I work with numbers every day. I love working with numbers. So this is an, an easy thing for me to do, uh, especially because I don't know anything about football, as many of the people I stand with uh, on the other side will probably <laughs> agree with me on. I guess when you're working with with economics, there's there's absolutes in terms of numbers, whereas in football, it feels like there's so many things that can contribute to a game, you know, a game that looks that you're 3-0 down, that looks dead and buried. The statistics will tell you, you can't come back from that. But we've seen, I think, two or three times this season, teams come back from 3-0 from down. So I wondered, how does the softer side of things come into come into the calculation? I think it depends very much on which numbers you use. Odds numbers or uh, prices, uh, whatever you want to call them, are very much based on a market balance. So the betting companies utmost job is to profit maximize for themselves so they try to find a betting line where they have an approximate gain or loss that's equal no matter the outcome but there are several other numbers you can use where you have more of um, let's call it underlying parameters Uh, for example 538 which i use as well and uh, euro club index which is a hypercube product also opta has a power ranking they take much more into account what is happening in the game so if um, FC Copenhagen wins a slim 1-0 on home soil, but actually are playing worse than the opponent, 538 will give them less of a bonus than, uh, for example, a bidding company will, because the bidding company is looking much more of what is the market, market equalizing odds. Got it. And so which of these different methodologies do you think is most accurate in terms of, I don't know if you've gone back and compared the outcomes versus the, the probabilities? I think there's something... Um, this is maybe like an injury of being an economist, but there's something really, really appealing in the way bidding works. Um, because of course, a, a bidding company sets an odds, a set, of, set odds to begin with that um, tries to reflect what they believe is the most likely outcome. But as soon as the market opens, it becomes what you can call a market clearing mechanism. So if a team has very low odds on an outcome, then 
people will probably shift towards the other outcome. And, and if the other outcome is played heavily, then it will be balanced out by the odds company. Odds are very much, uh, it's an expectation. So, so the numbers are an attempt at showing what the market accepts, uh, expects, sorry. And, and I think that's very appealing. Yeah, it's almost like tapping into the wisdom of crowds, right? Yeah, completely. Like if, if the, um, of course, this is an interesting market because at least some part of the bettors have a bias. But as long as that part of the, the customers is small enough, then in theory, the, the odds should reflect like the balanced expectation of, of everyone. Interesting. It may come as a surprise, but I bet very little myself. I like my money too much because like on average, you will lose over time. But I follow some of these uh, Twitter pages, Facebook pages where they give advice. And if you follow some of the big ones, you will see that very soon after they post a proposed bet, the odds will actually fall quite heavily on the outcome they suggest. And that, of course, is because a lot of people take out their advice and they all <laughs> go towards the <laughs> the proposition they pose. So the betting company will say, okay, there's actually a, large, a much larger expectation than, than we thought. So we have to calibrate the odds downwards to not lose money on that outcome. Got it. Wow, really interesting. And I wonder, you know, doing this every week, you must be really sort of clued into what's happening. I wonder what's the most interesting things you think the data has shown this season, whether it's, I don't know, big swings or unusual movements or anything like that. I think the most interesting thing we've seen, like if we go over the entire course of the season, is of course FC Norseland. Uh, they started out as a, I think, there was an 8% chance preseason that they would win medals. They are actually a much higher. They, I think, they had a twenty, had a twenty-ish percentage chance of uh, of relegating. Uh, so of course, to see them just skyrocket through the first fifteen rounds, I think they went into the plus eighty percent territory for medals after after fifteen rounds. Um, of course, that's been very interesting because nobody in the market expected that, even though they had a quite strong spring season last season after flirting with relegation. Um, and then, of course, there are, the, there are these very large swings. I think actually from around 25 to around 26, the um, the middle chance for Vibor and AGF has changed a lot. Like in, after around 24 and 25, they were completely neck and neck. And uh, with AGF, I don't know if you can call it dropping points because I don't think they expected to win against Copenhagen. But uh, and then Vibor took a, a very crucial win against Neuschland. And now there's a... 25 percentage point gap um, so it's very quickly and sometimes it feels like betting companies add in like a correction during some rounds because the swing becomes very large even though it's only based on on a single round yeah i've noticed that myself and actually looking back through the um the title winning probabilities throughout the season what surprised me was that the, there's only been four weeks where Norseland have have had a higher chance than FC yeah. Copenhagen. We think of yeah. them being being so dominant all season. And the other thing that really struck me was that in round ten, amazingly, Ranners were the second most likely title winners, yeah. which I don't remember happening at all. But you know, the 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 graph doesn't lie. No, that's I, I, I gotta say before the winter break, I can't exactly remember why, but but I think especially the point regarding Norseland only having four rounds as an outright favorite to the to the championship is uh, like at face value it's very surprising but it reverts back to the thing that odds is pretty much like a market expectation 
So even though they were down eight points, the market had a quite large and I think fair expectation that Copenhagen, based on the strength of the squad, should be able to at least come back somewhat. Uh, I don't think anybody expected that they close the gap so quickly, but people do expect Copenhagen to be by far the best team of those two. For someone like me looking at this from the outside, it does still surprise me that FC Copenhagen are close to 80% probability now to, to win the title yeah. and uh, FC Norgeland, only two points behind them in the table, still have to play each other and yet they're sat at, at 20% probability. What's the kind of reasoning behind that or does it come back to, as you said, this is what people are, are voting for with their wallets? Yeah, so that's the that of course is the the basis of it. So, so this is the expectation of the market. We, I, I can keep saying that many times, but it doesn't get really interesting. But I also think that I don't know how big the, the part of bets on this market is Danish versus international. Because I would believe that the Danish market would be more skewed towards Norseland because they have a better look at how Norseland has been playing and how Copenhagen has been playing. Like me, I would say that the last four games for Copenhagen has been very shaky. They got away with a not undeserved, but maybe a bit lucky win against Viborg. The runner's loss was completely fair. The single point in Aarhus was completely fair. Uh, So I would say that Copenhagen is struggling a lot. Of course, not overall, but looking at the strength of the squad, they they are struggling. They're going into a period now with... uh, five very tough games on paper Copenhagen should be much better than Brunby but we know that the derbies they take on uh, something extra that I see a lot of Brunby fans expecting that they will get hammered out of parking and it's just something different when it's that game so I would expect the the gap to be closer um, especially because the Northland game we have left Copenhagen has left this away and Copenhagen sometimes struggles a bit on artificial turf, while Norseland really doesn't. But maybe there's an international market who don't see these details. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you were just looking at the form, for example, Brombia are turning up to the derby in, in really, really bad form. And yet, as we know, this is almost going to be a cup final for them because they can't make it into Europe. They're not in the cup anymore. And so winning these these remaining derbies is really, that's what the fans are looking for. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, Jesper Sørensen can save a lot of face by winning. Uh, maybe in Brøndby, even better if he can win in Parken. Uh, while for Copenhagen, this should be, in theory, the easiest of the five coming games. So they take two different approaches to the games. And, and I think a lot of international bidders don't have that perspective. Absolutely. The final thing that I wanted to ask you about is the, the relegation odds. Because if we look at the graphs, again, it looks like if they uh, if the three teams that are most likely to, to be fighting for those, uh, those two relegation points, if the, the trends continue, it looks like we're going to reach a point on the final round of the season where uh, the odds are more or less the same. That would be pretty exciting. Yeah, it's a very exciting race. I think uh, Horsens, they are so bad. Uh, I think they're lucky that there's only six rounds and that's, let's say 12 rounds remaining because then I'm pretty sure that they would uh, they would get caught. But it's really getting close. But but still, we're in the relegation. So few points are necessary. Like if Lyngby or OB wins one game, two games out of the remaining six, it's almost locked for them. Um, I'm actually more... I think it's more interesting that Lyngby keeps having a higher chance for relegation, even though they are a point ahead mm. uh, of Aalborg. Because when you're in the relegation game, the, the point average are so low. I think both uh, Lyngby and Aalborg, are, they have to be around 0.8 points per game. 
So one point is a lot, uh, and I'm actually quite surprised that they keep having Olympia as a higher favorite for location than Aalborg. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also what surprised me was looking at the the pre-Christmas odds for for Aalborg that were still never never went higher than forty percent for relegation, even though they were getting you know, they were getting hammered every week practically. Yeah. Uh, they're now sat at eighty percent, which feels feels more more likely. But yeah, it seemed like that took a while to um to, to escalate. But I think it's because Aalborg is historically it's a team that survives. Like they, they've been Danish champions 2008 or something. Played a decent uh, Champions League run the same period, and they always like been able to stay up because it's my understanding. I think it was a fairly well-run club until four or five years ago, and they've been a stable Super League club for as long as I remember. So the idea that they could relegate is so far-fetched that I don't think the market catches up to it. I would have expected that we saw the same in the, what was it, 12-13 season where Brøndby was flirting with relegation until, what, the second last round or something. I don't think anyone believed that it would ever happen, and it didn't, because it's a stable club and they're always there, so how could they ever go down? And I think also if Olbo goes down, it will be a huge eye-opener for them, and I have, I would fear that they could see the same as maybe Sjønhjus and Esbjerg, that they don't go straight up again because they have to really collect some deeply internal uh, errors. It's going to be fascinating to see how it all plays out. And thank you for coming on the show, Mads. Thank you for producing these graphs. I think that seeing them every week really gives a... It helps you contextualize the season. It helps see how how the season's been moving. It's easy for these game weeks to to merge into one another. And so, yeah, thank you for doing what you do. And if you're listening to this and haven't seen them, I, I urge you to go check them out. They're really, really great ways of keeping track of the season and and uh, and getting a sense of uh, whether what you see with your eyes is what's uh, reflected in the the probabilities. Yeah, and thank you for having me. It's uh, I think my audience is quite small, but the those who are there they they enjoy it and that's the most important thing for me absolutely i can uh, i can definitely empathize with that <laughs> <laughs> take it easy good luck for the rest of the season thank you you too